If everybody here would take out uh, some form of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, whether it's in your Bible or phone or there in your bulletin, um, we're starting tonight a series that I don't know how long it's going to take. And, and I normally don't do it that way. Normally I, I plot out exactly how long the series will take, but I thought I'd just sort of let it happen with Genesis. There's a lot on my heart about Genesis. There's a lot that I've learn, been learning you know, from this book and I thought, you know, a lot of people are beginning Bible reading plans right now. A lot of you are in Genesis in your reading. Uh, let me just go there and let's see how long it takes us uh, to hit some of the main highlights of this really marvelous book. Uh, you may know what the word Genesis means. Uh, maybe somebody wants to call it out. What's the word Genesis mean? Maybe you don't know. That's okay. Sort of. Rebirth or beginning. It really just means birth. Yeah, the, the origin, yeah, the, the beginning of things. And it's obvious from the two verses we just read why it's called that. Uh, this is all about what happened in the beginning. But in order to understand Genesis, you also have to get in your mind why this book was first given, to whom it was first given. And that'll give you some insight into how it can be helpful to us to learn the origin story. Uh, origin stories are always exciting, aren't they? Uh, just about every superhero movie you've ever seen is about an origin story. Uh, when Spider-Man gets bit by the radioactive spider. Uh, when Batman's or Bruce Wayne's parents get shot in the street of Gotham City. You know, that, that's the beginning of how he begins to become Batman. Superman gets sent here from a far-off planet to save the world as a part of an intergalactic battle that's going on. Uh, origin stories are awesome, but imagine, and the reason why this is given is to show you an origin story that is not just mythical but real can actually shape the way you live in the world. Think about it this way. Who wrote these words? Moses, humanly speaking, it was Moses. When did Moses write these words? Think about that. I mean, you don't have to give me a year. I'm not quizzing you on a year. I, I just mean like the situation. What's happening in the situation? I mean, what was Moses' life calling? Israel, out of Egypt, in, through the wilderness, into the promised land. The wilderness was meant to be a short period of preparation, and it turned out to be a generational period of preparation. And during that wilderness time, God gave to Moses the first five books of the Bible. And so when Moses first wrote down, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, he was speaking to a newly redeemed people out of slavery in Egypt who were preparing to live God's way now in the new land. And so they needed a whole new origin story. A whole new story of where everything came from to shape that life. Uh, don't you know every single person? I mean, this is a great question, by the way, to even ask people uh, if you're wanting to have a deep spiritual conversation with someone and you're not sure where they stand or what they believe, just say, where do you think everything came from? Well, what is your belief? And, and really be interested. You know, don't just ask just for the sake of you getting a chance to say. But really wonder, you know, what, what do you think about the origins? Uh, and don't you see, I mean, I think most of you probably who've had conversations like this know that most people do have some kind of idea. In fact, a lot of people might even quote parts of this, God created it, they may say. But 
there's a whole lot more to accepting this origin story as the story that shapes your life beyond just being able to say God created it. It's got to get down into your bones that you are under a creator. You live in a created world. You are a created thing, and you are underneath a Lord who made it all and who is the source of it all. And so Genesis is really about theology. Theology, meaning God. It's about God. Uh, God's the main character. And the reason why this origin story is so powerful is it takes us all the way back to God himself. And it gives us some foundations for living and, and thinking about every part of the world by showing us who God is. Who he was in the beginning, who he was before the world was made, and why he decided to call this world into being. Moses, can, can, you, can you think about it? I mean, the Israelites who had been slaves for four or five hundred years. They had learned the origin story of the Egyptians. Surely they had learned it, right? Because they had been there 400 years. They were trained to think, my master is my Lord. Pharaoh is my Lord. And here it is, Moses saying, nope. Get back to the beginning and let me show you who this God is, who is not only your Lord, but he's Pharaoh's Lord too. He's your old master's Lord. He's Egypt's Lord. And in a special way, he's going to be y'all's Lord. This new nation that he's formed, he's going to be your Lord in a unique and special way. So look at your uh, bulletin. and I, I want to talk you through a few things just in these first two verses. Uh, and basically, uh, you can think of this as one sentence that I'm going to try to explain to you. Here's the sentence. God is above all and the source of all, so therefore he's the Lord of all. That's the sentence. God is above all and the source of all, therefore he is the Lord of all. Let me break that down for us tonight, and we'll think about how this shapes us. Let me give you, before I do that, let me give you another word. Have you ever heard of the word worldview? You know, if, even if you haven't heard it, you know just by the word what it means. You know, it's, it's the way someone views the world. Uh, everybody's got a worldview. Like when you ask them, where did everything come from, and they have an answer, that's part of their worldview. Uh, I think... Learning this one sentence can help us get the basic building block, the first block that goes down in a Christian worldview. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the lenses of glasses that we can put on to clearly see the world right if we understand this sentence. God is above all and the source of all, and therefore he's the Lord of all. So first of all, God is above all. God is above all. Uh, do you like when people say things about you that aren't true? Not really. <laughs> yeah. uh, have you ever had that happen? How does that feel? It's got, it's got to be one of the worst feelings. Well, it's got to be one of the worst offenses that someone can ever do, if they did it on purpose especially. To, to purposely say something wrong about someone is very deeply cutting. In fact, there's a whole world of lawsuits <laughs> out there that are all about slander and libel and all those different kinds of things where someone is propagating an error about someone else or about some company or organization. Uh, well, you know this, verse 1 of Genesis 1 really shows us that God also hates slander about himself. And one of the top ways that people have always slandered God is by trying to put God on a level with other things. Trying to get God down on the same level and compare and contrast, you know, compare him as if he were like other things. Rather than see, seeing God as completely distinct in a category of his own. And so when it says, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, there's a few things you've got to notice there. First of all, in the beginning. In the beginning, God. Meaning, well, what beginning is it talking about? The beginning of everything is what Moses is talking about. But in the beginning, when everything began, that moment, God already was. There was already God. God didn't have a beginning point. He has no origin story himself. He always eternally is. Everything else has come out of his eternal existence. And all of us have our existence on loan from him. We borrow existence from his existence. Because his already was. You see, that's, that's the first indication here. We're dealing with someone who cannot be compared or cannot be put on a level with anything else. And then it adds to it and it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And the phrase heavens and earth is what poets call a mirrorism. Which is a way of saying every, a way of describing everything with two words. Like when you say night and day, what are you saying? If I do something night and day, I'm doing something all the time, right? Can you, can you think of another one like that? A mirrorism, night and day, black and white. You know, maybe high. I searched high and low, meaning I searched everywhere. Well, this is a mirrorism. Heavens and earth in the Bible is a mirrorism for. Literally everything in the universe. And so the second indication that God is way different than everything is not only that he began, he already was when everything else began, but that everything else began because he began it. And so the vision of the world that the Bible gives us is, we may take this for granted, but the Israelites wouldn't have taken this for granted. The vision of the world is unlike every other vision. Uh, the vision of the Bible is unlike any other vision of the world in that in the Bible there is God and then creature. There's creator and creature. Those are the only two categories. And there's only one singular being that fits in the first category. There's only one creator. There's only one God. There's only one maker. And all other things, even down to the tiniest thing and the largest thing, the things you can't see, the things you can see, all those things derive their existence from that one in the first category. Uh, theologians call this the creator-creature distinction. And it's the most basic building block of a biblical Christian worldview. Now, we take that for granted somewhat, but it's only because we've been influenced by the Bible. In Egypt, when the Israelites lived there, do you think that was the worldview of the Egyptian religion? You probably know enough about Egypt, like with like you know King Tut and all that stuff that you learned about in school, with the you know burying the kings in the in the um, pyramids and putting all their belongings with them so they can take them over on the other side. And you know enough about it to know that's not the way they thought about things. There were many gods, and all the gods were basically like people, just a little bigger. None of the gods were all powerful. Uh, they themselves were almost right alongside all of creation. Everything got sort of blended together. Uh, most human religion has always thought that about God. God is just one of us. He's just part of, what, of everything else. Uh, you know, he can be compared. He can be understood by us because he's like us, just a little bit bigger. And Moses is saying, you've got to put all that out of your mind, Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You've got to understand how, how much bigger and how much more um, all-encompassing this God that has redeemed you out of slavery really is. Literally, no one 
or nothing can possibly be compared to him. And so when human beings come along and slander God by trying to put him on our level and trying to compare him and replace him with created things, we are committing one of the worst offenses we could possibly commit. Which is what the Bible calls idolatry, right? Uh, this verse 1 of Genesis 1 uh, is basically a catechism against idolatry. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that other thing you're worshiping is classed in the classification of heavens and earth, it's unworthy of worship. Because it's not in the other category of God, <laughs> right? And the two things have to be completely separated in our minds and in our hearts. Isn't that, isn't that interesting to think about? Uh, I think particularly it's interesting to think about when you imagine Moses teaching these lessons to a newly redeemed people in the desert. A people, by the way, whose first instinct was to make a calf and worship it. And Moses is saying, do you see how crazy that is? A calf, even a real calf, which is better than your golden calf, is still a creature. At least people who worship a real calf are worshiping something God made. You're worshiping a picture of something God made, which is even more ridiculous. The thing that ought to shape our life is that there is a God who is transcendent, that is above and beyond everything else, and cannot be compared or cannot be replaced by anything else. This is why, y'all, what we were talking about this morning is so important in our service, where we said the Bible is essential to knowing God. Because left to our own devices, without the Bible, we make up all manner of slanderous things. It's not that the other religions of the world don't have any truth in them. I think all the religions of the world have some truth in them. It's that they also have lots of slander in them, which God hates and rejects. The Bible has no slander in it. Why? Because it's God breathing about about himself. And therefore, our whole view of God and our whole view of the world has to be derived from here. We have to start with what God gave, beginning right here with Genesis 1 with Moses. Uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that people are ignorant of God because of the hardness of their hearts. People are ignorant of God because of the hardness of their hearts. And, he says, God's remedy to the hardness of the heart and therefore to the ignorance is that God shines the light of Christ onto them to wake them up. Did you get that? Ignorant because of a hard heart against God, and God's remedy to ignorance is to fix the hard heart, which is to shine the light of Jesus flooding into the dark soul. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's only two categories, creator and creature. If it's not in the category of creator, don't worship it. Don't serve it. Uh, don't give your whole heart to it. Don't put all your trust in it. Just treat it as a creature. Just like yourself, a useful thing, or a fellow human being made in the image of God, but not God. Let God be God. That's the first thing. God is above all, cannot be compared to anyone or anything. But Moses, secondly, tells us that God is the source of all. Now look at verse 2. It's very mysterious. There are some mysteries about verse 1, but... It's not as mysterious. I mean, verse 1 is fairly cut and dry. 
Unless, of course, you're going to verse 1 to try to answer every scientific question that's ever been raised. And then you won't, I mean, you're going to be racking your brain because verse 1 doesn't answer every scientific question. It just tells you the simple fact of the Bible, which God created everything. But verse 2 introduces a great deal more mystery. It says, The earth was without form and void, or formless and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And everybody said, what? You know, what does that even mean? Uh, let me tell you a, a theory that is very popular, and then I'll try to show you why I don't think the theory is the best. Um, this was made popular in the Schofield Reference Bible, which I know a lot of people have, and there's probably not everything's not bad about the Schofield Reference Bible, but... This was an introduction into um, the interpretation of Genesis, which hadn't ever been before. Uh, and Schofield said this, verse 1 is what God made at the start. Verse 2 describes the way the earth was after the fall of the angels. Maybe you've heard about this. It's also sometimes called the gap theory, where God made the world, everything is good, and then at some point it was just angels and stuff, maybe dinosaurs, whatever. And then the angels fell and everything went into chaos and the rest of the creation story is really about God recreating it back to order. What, to me, the, I, mean, that's not, I mean, you might say that's not the biggest deal if you think that, but, and, and maybe it's not, but I think what makes it slightly a big deal is, well, Moses doesn't say that. <laughs> right? It doesn't actually say that in, in verses 1 and 2. And I think... If you're looking for a way to explain away some of the mystery here, like Mr. Schofield did, I think you might even uh, dull the sharp edges of what Moses actually is trying to say. It's not like God made the heavens and the earth and then somehow it became chaotic out of his control and he had to wrestle it back into control. I think that makes God look less, less awesome than he actually is supposed to look in this. I think what Moses is actually saying is, without God... The earth, even if it were called into creation, would have been formless and void unless God filled every single void and gave form to every single formless part. In other words, creation was sourced entirely by God. In fact, one indication of this is in verse 2, the phrase used form and void is a poetic phrase. In fact, it rhymes in Hebrew. Tohu vavohu is what it says. And kind of in English, willy-nilly might be the way that we would say it. The, the earth was willy-nilly, and darkness covered everything, but then God hovered. And when it said the Spirit of God hovered, that word is used in, also in, um, in Exodus by Moses to describe an e a mother eagle hovering over a nest, getting ready to either feed or teach the little birds how to fly. It's the hovering of a mother bird over the nest to care for the dependents. So instead of trying to come up with some theory that explains verses 1 and 2 and takes the mystery out, I think it's better to say, no, what it's saying is, had God not done absolutely everything necessary to create, nothing would have been created. And if God were to take away his hand at any moment from the creation now, it would all become tohu vabohu, um, void and empty willy-nilly, once again. Darkness would come back in. I mean, in Hebrews it says God upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's what it's talking about. If the Spirit doesn't hover, if the Spirit doesn't 
care like a mother eagle for the eaglets, everything falls into nothingness. And so if verse 1 was supposed to give us a sense of God's difference, he's, the, he's Lord of all, he's over, he's over everything else, this verse helps us understand our dependence on God. Because literally everything derives from him. Again, I think Moses in the background is arguing with the Egyptians. Um, the Egyptian creation story, as well as many of the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, was something like this. One God fighting another God over control of the world. And in one of the stories that comes from this area during the time that Moses wrote, one God kills the other and uses the blood of that God to create the world. So, it, you know, in other words, all the stories were all about a struggle between two vying powers, one power coming out on top and then taking the bits and pieces left from the other power and making something. This is saying there was nothing like that. In fact, what it was was just a dumb, quiet, dark earth that God had to bring. Every shaft of light, every little speck of life that came had to come from him. Think about this. Not just your spiritual life, but your physical life depends on the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the same Holy Spirit that has to make you born again to make you a Christian is the same Holy Spirit that had to give you life physically as a baby. It's giving you breath right now. Uh, he's the one that makes the trees go and the birds go and the rivers flow and all that stuff, right? The Holy Spirit, the same God. There's one God. And this one God, different than everything else, is the source of everything else. Think about the things in your life that need care constantly or else they fall apart. What goes willy-nilly if you don't take care of it? Your house? Anybody ever experienced that? You don't clean the dishes for a little while? Things go willy-nilly. Your yard, the grass, the weeds, your car, your own body. All these things need your care. Well, this is saying everything needs God's care. And here's the great thing about our God. This is the generosity of our God. He is always giving the care that is necessary to keep it going. Like a mother eagle hovering over the nest was God in the beginning and is God now. Can you imagine what it was like to hear Moses teaching them this as they sat in the desert getting ready to be his people in the promised land? I hope you can imagine it because that's very similar to where we're at tonight. People redeemed from slavery, amen, from sin, gathered together where God addresses us with these words to help us know what it's like to be the new nation that Jesus is building, his kingdom in this world. We've got to know there's one God. He's over all. He's the source of all. We depend on him for everything, as does everyone else in this world, as does everything else in this world. And therefore, lastly, he is the Lord of all. If God is over all, if God is the source of all, he must then be Lord of all. And this is where 
ideas become worldview. Where worldview becomes life-changing, life-shaping reality. Is when you recognize your life is not independent, but it's underneath a master. Uh, Many people tell us that uh, it is good to belong to yourself. It's good to be completely in control of yourself and to make all your own decisions and do whatever you want to do. That's the ideal of life, in fact, to our culture, is it not? The ideal is to do whatever you want to do. Have nobody stand in your way or tell you you can't do it or shouldn't do it. Do what you want. And what this story radically claims is that it's actually a bad thing to belong to yourself and a good thing to belong to somebody else. If belonging, if that somebody else is this God, the one who hovers, not to destroy, but hovers to care and to share and to give. Isn't that good? I think for the Israelites to hear this in the desert would have been a life-changing event for many of them. You see, they had been slaves. They, had, they knew very well what it was like to belong to someone else. And it wasn't good. Uh, they belonged to a man who demanded more bricks but gave him less straw. Remember that? And, uh, you know, kept just pressing them and pushing them and being very uh, unjust and unmerciful to them. He didn't care, really. He just used them. And yet here, I mean, look at verses 1 and 2 and tell me where you can find God the user or God the abuser or God the tyrant who cares nothing for his slave or his subject. No, I mean, I think the opposite picture comes out, doesn't it? Isn't that a liberating picture? I mean, imagine being an Israelite. You have a new master, Moses said, and they said, oh, man, a new master? I thought you were supposed to be freeing us from a master. And Moses says, oh, wait, no, wait till you hear about this master. In the beginning, he just decided. He didn't have to. He just decided to call every single thing into existence and give it life. And then when he did, he didn't just let it run on its own because it couldn't have run on its own. He stood over it and hovered over it and every moment of every day has been giving it every single rich thing it needs to live. This is the one who says, come to me and swear allegiance to me and be my obedient slave and servant. That should have been liberating. Now, was it liberating to every heart and mind of every Israelite? No. In fact, some of them didn't believe it, didn't like it. They, they're like us. They sort of bristled under it. They, they argued with it. They spent most of their life trying to avoid it. But for many of them, they eventually got wrestled into submission. <laughs> and it was a beautiful submission. And, and it was a joyful submission when they did get wrestled in. And y'all, to be a Christian means to be delightfully submitted to God. Delight, not just submitted, delightfully submitted. Not just delighted, but delightfully submitted. Do you see? you got to have both of those. Uh, some people try to be a Christian by just being submitted. What's that look like? That's the older brother in the prodigal son story. Oh, father, look how I've slayed for you. And you, didn't, you haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. That's just submission without the delight. But there are other people, and and by the way, Jesus says that's bad. That's a way to lose God. That's just as bad as the other one. Because other people try to be delighted without submission. 
What does that look like? Chasing other things. Chasing other things. Sort of making it up as I go, whatever I want it to be, you know. God, here is my idea of who you are, and I expect you to be that way. Or, you know, here is my agenda for my life. I expect you to help me. If I do my part, help me. You know, just give me, give me joy, God. That's all I want from you is give me joy. Without the sense that joy actually comes from bowing the knee. Laying down the weapon and learning how to listen to somebody else. Learning how to listen to his instruction. Delightful submission is the description of a Christian life. Because we're called by the God who alone is in the class creator. And that creator has been ceaselessly generous with each and every one of us every single day. Think about it this way. Let me give you four Things about God uh, that we see here, and I just want to quickly talk you through how each of them can give you a different way of thinking about life. And they actually spell an acronym, PANS, P-A-N-S. I don't know, that just came out. It wasn't intentional. There's nothing about a PAN that I'm trying to teach you, but PANS is the, the acronym, just so you can remember it. The first thing we've learned tonight is that God has priority. Priority. God goes first. And that means God ought to go first in our lives and in our hearts. Um, living, living for God, again, is not just about getting somebody to assist you to do what you already wanted to do. But I think for most of us, just like the Israelites, we spend most of our lives thinking that's what God's for. <laughs> but this passage is trying to get us, you know, trying to you know, inspire us and move us to get into a different category where we come to God and say, God, okay, forget what I want. What do you want? Forget what I think. What do you think? Forget what I say or what so-and-so says. What do you say? Priority. That's what that means. You know, if God, if in the beginning God, if heavens and earth came from this one God, then he gets priority. He gets the first, he gets to speak first. He gets to speak last. And we need to be prepared to treat him that way. Second thing, authority. God's got authority. Uh, we'll see next week that the glorious sort of uh, march of the days, the six days of creation where God just says it and it's so. Uh, like a divine king, you know, just his own fiat. We say, you know, his, his, his very word makes it happen. And there's something about even verses 1 and 2 that ought to remind us, what, you know, if God, if God was way before we ever were, if God was way before we even were, if before we were even a thought, God was, then submission to his authority is actually very, very good for us. Because oftentimes, when we're trying to be our own authority, we forget the fact that we're limited. <laughs> right? Uh, limited in the sense that we don't know everything, we can't see everything, and we ha don't have half the wisdom we need to have to make the right decisions. Not even, I think it's generous to say we don't have half. We don't have a, the smart, tiniest fraction of the wisdom we need to have. And yet here's a God with all authority, all power. He is the king. To learn to submit to him is actually to come away from poverty into riches. 
Like, like, don't let anybody convince you and don't convince yourself that coming to Jesus is going from riches to poverty. It might mean you go from physical riches to physical poverty to follow Jesus. He tells us about that. It might mean you have to let go of a lot of things physically. But spiritually speaking, it's never going from riches to poverty, always going from poverty to riches. Again, it's a good thing to belong to another, and it's a really bad thing to belong to yourself. When that other is this other, who is prior and who has all authority. Now, the last two, he's sufficient. God's sufficiency. I'm sorry, the end. Yeah, I got him out of, I was going to give you pazin, but I, I need to give you pans. So the end is necessity. Necessity, I'm sorry. <laughs> necessity. God is necessary. Um, have you ever tried to live or go without something that's necessary? Food. Have you ever tried to do that? Yeah. How did that go? Uh, last couple of days. A couple of days, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were good for a couple of days, and then, yeah, things got really hard, and, you know, you had to get back to it, right? Uh, ever tried to drive your car without gas? <laughs> I did that one time. <laughs> didn't realize I didn't have gas and broke down in the middle of Lakeland. It was a sad, sad day. Yeah. I had to call a friend. I had to be that guy to say, hey, you got a gas can? <laughs> Come bail me out. In my minivan. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, you try to go with some, without something necessary, and you realize, wow, I'll never do that again. So now every time I get in the car, I look. Ever since that day, it was years ago, I, I look. Okay, make sure I've got what I need. I even have the thing now where it says, how many miles to empty? That's my lifesaver right there. Because there's certain things that you cannot live without. To try to live without them is folly. This is why the Bible says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. It's not trying to give an insult. It's not trying to just call people fools just to insult them. It's actually saying, no, literally, you're a fool <laughs> if you try to live without something that's absolutely necessary. Just like trying to drive a car without gas is very foolish. Trying to live without God is foolish. Yet, do we all... Don't, <laughs> What are some of the ways we try to live without God? You just get up and go. Just get up and go. Uh, you, you get locked into the you know, just the, the day in and day out, and you kind of just don't think about it. And now listen, God is there helping you even if you don't think about him, which is the beautiful thing about God, but the good thing for you is to think about him. It's not for him that you need to think about him, it's for you. <laughs> He's good. We're not good when we don't think about him or bring him into the, the picture. Necessity. Now, last one, you already know it, so it's not a surprise. Sufficiency. He's not only necessary, he's sufficient. And we, don't, we, can't, we could go into all kinds of ways and talk the rest of the night about ways we act that God is not sufficient. What does sufficient mean? Enough. And when you don't think something's enough, what do you do? Look for something else. Try other things. You try to add to it. Do you do that with God ever? I know I do. I, I try to look for other strategies. You know, I try to add to God other things, supplement. Instead of going straight to prayer, I do prayer last, like it's like the last resort. Uh, I've even said before, I've caught myself saying it, well, I guess... Well, I guess we can pray. Can't think of anything else. I guess we can pray. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I just said that. 
But, but that's sort of the way we think, isn't it? I get, well, we don't have anything else to do, so I guess it's prayer time. As if that were the Hail Mary pass. <laughs> when if God is sufficient, it's not the Hail Mary, it's the whole playbook. It's the entire playbook. It's to come to God and lay it before him, spread it before him like, uh, what was the king who did that? Hezekiah, he spread it out before the Lord, it says, so that God could see his situation and do something. God is sufficient. Uh, we don't think he's sufficient when we try to earn our own salvation. You know? And we talked a lot about that in our last series in uh, Galatians. You cannot earn it yourself. Uh, this doesn't mean good works aren't important. They're very important. In fact, they're necessary because it's what God saves you for to do good works. But he doesn't save you by your good works. And to get the prepositions wrong, you know, is very dangerous there. To think you're saved by good works rather than for them is very dangerous. Uh, just like it's dangerous to think you're saved without them, like not even for them, is dangerous. Sufficiency, the, the sufficiency of Christ means, I believe, just like God was sufficient at creation, at my new creation when I became a Christian, God was sufficient through what Jesus did on the cross to make me a new person, to save me from all my sins, and to give me eternal life with him. I don't need to add anything to it. Not one thing. Because it's perfectly complete. Perfect tense. Right? It's important to live that way. It's important to remind ourselves of these three things, these four things every day. God is prior. God is authoritative. God is necessary. God is sufficient. This is why theology matters. You know, I love that not only does Moses not go into like all the scientific questions or solve all the mysteries here, he also doesn't try to argue for the existence of God here. He just says it. In the beginning, God. Right? I love that. You know, well, I love that because, yeah, there is some value to, to thinking of why it's reasonable to believe in God. And I do believe it's very reasonable to believe in God. Uh, more reasonable to believe in him than not to believe in him. And I think there's good reasons to show that. But you can never argue the heart into belief. Belief is a gift. And theology doesn't begin with trying to argue yourself into belief. It begins with assuming what's obvious. In the beginning, God. <laughs> and then working from there and building on that foundation. Uh, really important to, to remember is... You can't wait until your life is falling apart to try to fix your theology. Can't. I mean, you're going to want to, but you can't really wait till that point. Uh, you need to get your theology from the Scripture now. Right? De derive it now and get your heart really based on it now. And then when everything breaks loose... You'll have it. It'll be your firm foundation. That's why the whole story of Jesus and the and the house built on the rock versus the sand. That's what he was talking about. You can't wait till the storm's up to decide. Oh, I'm going to build it on the rock now, right? Hey, bud, <laughs> you got to build it on the rock way way before the storm starts, right? So that's Genesis one one and two. I offer it to you for your thought and prayer. Uh, we'll talk next week about the rest of the chapter. Uh, we will go faster than two verses a week, I promise, but uh, I thought there was just way too much in those two verses to, to lump it in tonight with everything else. Uh, let me pray for us.